Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. And in this episode, we have a special guest. Brian Peck is joining us from the Religious Trauma Institute. And Brian is a religious trauma therapist and coach. And honestly, I'm just recording this after having the conversation with Brian. And it was one of the best conversations we've ever had on the podcast. This is such rich stuff. And so I'm so excited to share this with you. I talk to you guys day in, day out for hours every day. And so many of you are going through um, different adverse experiences from your religious backgrounds. Many of you have um, different um, components of religious trauma. This is going to be so helpful for you. Um, I really am excited for um, y'all. I just think this is going to be amazing. Um, before we get started, I want to remind you, as always, the deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource that helps people find others in their local area that are deconstructing. Deconstruction can be such a lonely journey, um, such an isolating journey. A lot of us lose friends, family, um, just church, community, all those things. Even if we stay in those environments, even if we don't come out as deconstructing, we often um, find ourselves disconnected from those communities and those groups. And so it can be really lonely. The deconstructionnetwork.com is a free resource. You just sign up, put in your city, state, country. There's couple of thousand people all over the world. Um, so there's a really good chance that there's going to be someone nearby that you can connect with, that you can get to know, that you can, you know, have join you on this journey, laugh, cry with you. Um, the thing about deconstruction is no one ends up in exactly the same place, but we have all come from a very similar place. And having someone that has left um, toxic religion um, and having that person to connect with can be such a huge thing um, and so i do encourage you if you are feeling lonely or isolated in your journey of deconstruction check out the deconstructionnetwork.com as i said it's completely free um, and you may well be able to start making friends community um, whatever you may have lost in the journey all right so enough about that let's jump into the conversation with brian phil hey hey how's it going man good how are you I am doing amazing. I'm just having okay. a great day. You know, when you have a awesome. day that just everything works and everything kind of Yay. comes together. One of those days for me. So, um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this all day. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've certainly been excited as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know how I didn't know about you sooner. You know, you're, you've are you been working in this space for a while, it sounds like. And, um, for a I while, thought I, yeah. I thought I knew kind of... The landscape of the deconstruction community and um, when i stumbled across your work as after you reached out i'm like oh my goodness there's a lot here yeah there's there's a lot of people out there it just i think it's really easy to find like a kind of narrow groove of mm -hmm. deconstruction because what happens is like you'll notice very well when people deconstruct it can look like a whole myriad of things because it's yeah. not really about where you're going it's about right. where you yeah. come from. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then what people tend to do is they gravitate towards people that kind of mm -hmm. click with them, where right. they're at. Yeah. Like if they go into some sort of atheism, they're probably mm -hmm. not going to keep following kind of more Christian right. deconstruction yeah. and mm -hmm. people that are reframing faith and kind of holding on to yeah. some in one way or another, or people that go into like, uh, I don't know, something really out there like pagan mm -hmm. or something. That's, yeah. That feels like a move in the opposite direction for someone that's like an atheist. or right. um, And so people end up in these little streams mm -hmm. and then like you, you feel like, as soon as kind of a, a few people start pointing to other parts, you're like, holy crap, there's a whole other world yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just really fun to, and, and then even within our own little niches, mm -hmm. my God, it's, yeah. it's just such a fast moving yeah. um, thing. It's, it's really, it's yeah. exciting. It's, it's yeah, it really up. is. 
And I, I was really pleased to hear that you're looking at doing some research in this area as well. And you have been doing Literally some, Literally just finished like. my report today. Oh, wow. Um, oh, I'm report. so excited to read that. Yeah. So it's about, oh, I don't even know how big it is. It's like 4,000 words. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit, pretty big chunk. Because it's just yeah. an initial report. Because really what, what we had to do, I mean, talking to the researcher, I'm working with a research team here in the UK. Because mm-hmm. that's not my background at all. I'm not, mm-hmm. not massively academic. I've got a degree, but... Yeah. I don't know if I earned it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it, talking to the guy, he was like, well, he's like, first and foremost, he's like, what's deconstruction? Like, who are these people mm, that you're yeah. measuring? And I'm like, ah, shit. Like, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like, right. this is a really nebulous term that people are using. And so Truly. Yeah. tearing back the veil, looking across mm-hmm. a whole spectrum of people and yeah. then going, okay, how can we identify this group? And right. so I think we've done really well at actually identifying and finding identifiers and mm. actually even potentially linking it to um, a verified peer-reviewed scale over about 30 years. Um, oh, wow. There, there's been a scale. It was called the, the Faith Development Scale. Um, okay. It started with um, some of like, I don't know if you know, like James Fowler and some of those guys. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Um, so early on, he was quite involved with this as, along with some mm. other people. He then developed and helped run it. And then again, um, later, there was a couple of... Um, professors in the states i think in texas that revised again it became the revised mm. faith development scale nice. but the the correlations we are seeing to people deconstructing and answering metrics for what we would consider our deconstruction based mm-hmm. on the kind of philosophical term of what it is right. applied yeah. to religion um they're like unbelievable correlation you're looking at like 91 yeah. 95 96 percent it's mm. just Oh, it's so exciting. So we can actually almost track how people measure on this scale. The more they Mm. are developed in their faith, which doesn't become more Mm. religious, which a lot of people would want it to be. Right, yeah, sure. Um, It's quite the opposite sometimes. Um, The more likely they are to be deconstructed. So we're hopefully going to be able to then identify long-term if we can track people over five, six, ten years, what happens? Do they all become atheist? Mm -hmm. Is progressive Christianity just a stepping stone? Um, Or do the atheists suddenly turn around and go, well, maybe not, you know, like people like Fowler were always mm-hmm. quite a big fan of like a reemergence of spirituality after mm-hmm. seasons of atheism and yeah. thing. And, and so it'd be really interesting to actually track those things and get some data, mm-hmm. you know, and say, well, actually yeah. it's a bit more complex. 20% do this, 10% mm-hmm. do that, which is what I would imagine anecdotally yeah. from working with, you know, a few thousand people. Right. It's sure. going to be a bit all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it's exciting to see that kind of uh, being more developed and a bit more nuanced. Um, and then at some point we'll deconstruct spirituality. <laughs> you a know? whole nother level. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, it is not the, well, it is the Phil Drysdale show. That's what it's called, but it is today. Oh. It's going to be the Brian Peck show. So I want to yeah, dive yeah. <laughs> into your work, what you're mm-hmm. about. Uh, we maybe talk a bit about your journey, but I'd love to like open up a whole world of religious trauma. I've had a yeah, few people sure. on talking about their own trauma. I've had quite mm-hmm. a lot of people on talking about right. that. Yeah, for I've sure. had a few people that are more um, uh, experienced in the field, you know, coaches mm-hmm. and therapists, yeah, sure. things like that. Um, but I know like this is your world, you know, this is what yeah. you're about. And so yeah. I cannot wait. We can uh, dive into that. Um, awesome. But do you want to maybe start by just giving kind of an overview of who you are um, for people that aren't familiar with your work? Yeah, um, sure. I, I guess I can, um, yeah, do a, a high level Passover here. I, um, we can I'm, get into uh, the nitty gritty. Yeah, don't, okay, don't, sure. Don't worry too yeah. much. We won't miss too much. <laughs> We've got awesome. two hours. We should get yeah, into the nitty gritty. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker in Boise, Idaho. And I've been interested in kind of religious trauma 
and the deconstruction process, deconversion, as some folks call that, um, you know, just the uh, faith transition, the experience of, you know, questioning one's faith and, you know, finding some other place um, after you kind of go through that process um, on the other side of that. And um, yeah, so that, that there's both a, a personal interest in it as well as a professional interest. And as, as you've pointed out, it's really hard to define some of these terms. It's hard to have a sense of like what people are self-identifying as. Um, how can we begin to understand and measure um, even what we talk about um, kind of religious trauma that some folks kind of, you know, think of that in a very broad sense, um, any kind of um, negative experience. They might lump in uh, deconstruction as a traumatic experience. Um, and, and so I've been interested in, in taking more of a, a, a clinical look at that. You know, um, is it meeting criteria for PTSD, for example, mm-hmm. or other um, stress-related disorders? Um, and as, you know, complex trauma is becoming more recognized, it feels like um, a lot of religious trauma would fit more nicely under that um, kind of diagnosis. Yeah. And, so, um, and so, yeah, I, I think wanting to, you know, also expand the research in this area as well, um, getting a better sense of like, what are the different kind of adverse religious experiences, which is a term that we've um, come up with recently, um, that kind of mirrors the early child or the adverse childhood experiences. And and there's uh, massive amounts of um, data and research around that. But just, you know, kind of creating another scale, looking at like what types of um, adverse religious experiences are people, um, you know, um, experiencing inside of religion? And then, you know, how do those correlate to um, trauma or, you know, other kind of mental health concerns? And um, so, yeah, it feels like we're just at the very um, beginning stages here. Uh, of course, folks have been harmed inside of religion, you know, since the <laughs> beginning of time. Um, and so that's not new. And folks have experienced trauma you know, since, you know, um, we, we evolved early on and we've learned how to resolve trauma, you know, for a long time as well. But in terms of having like a really good, clear understanding of that, it feels like we're just at the very beginning stages. And um, yeah, so I'm really passionate about that. I'm also one of the co-founders of the Religious Trauma Institute. And part of our mission there is to provide clinical training for mental health professionals, um, psychoeducational workshops for survivors, just kind of expanding the conversation from a trauma-informed perspective. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So that's what I'm, that's so what I'm about. That's what I'm passionate about. Yeah, for that, sure. That's, that's yeah. amazing. I guess before we start, um, or mm-hmm. well, as we start, I guess, um, you mentioned this is a personal thing for you. Mm-hmm. Could, could you yeah. maybe talk about um, a bit of your journey and, and why this is um, a personal thing for you? Yeah. So so I, I've essentially, I, I essentially grew up in the church. My... Um, my parents um, got saved when I was like between three and four, I think. Um, my dad um, had grown up in a Christian home. My mom had never attended church, um, didn't grow up um, as a Christian. And, um, and so I, <laughs> it's funny that I can, I have a few faint memories of life before church. And it was like, we had a television in our, in our, in our home. Um, and then after church, of course, you know, um, we, we didn't have TV because we joined a, a very a fundamentalist, um, evangelical, um, uh, Christian group. And so, um, yeah, so I don't have talking a lot of memories trauma, before man. that. Talking about yeah. trauma, childhood, yeah, I know, TV. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But things really changed, um, in our family. Um, you know, it was, super conservative in terms of, you know, dress code and um, expectations. 
Um, I went to church school K through 12, made it through one year of Bible college before uh, things began to really fall apart for me. I had questions mm-hmm. before then, um, but that's when I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I met, I met, you know, non-believers who were compassionate and caring and, you know, um, amazing humans. And it really mm-hmm. uh, began to undermine what all the caricatures of, you know, non-believers that I, I'd grown up, um, exposed to. And so, um, and that began, you know, a bit of a, a journey. Um, as you know, it's not a flip a switch and you kind of go from, you know, a believer to some other form of, of human. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I think in, in graduate school is when um, I, I began to realize how important it was to, to do some additional work um, beyond um, the deconstruction of the beliefs themselves. Mm. Um, it was more about finding new ways of being or new ways of thinking. Um, and my, my wife, um, who I was dating at the time of the, the tail end of my deconstruction, um, or leaving the church, I should say, mm. um, she said to me while I was in graduate school, she said, you know, Brian, you're, you're still a fundamentalist. You're just fundamentalist about different things now. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and of course a huge wake up call because I was you know, becoming very progressive, um, in a social work program, um, very social justice oriented. And, and I had, you know, effectively identified the new, um, in group and out group, you know, I, I knew who the, 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 the good humans were and the bad humans. And I was holding very tightly to beliefs and, um, I could, defend my new beliefs as being objectively healthier for me, uh, better for the world. Um, and yet how I held those, how I carried those, how they, um, how tightly I grasped a hold of those um, and wielded against others, I, I, I began to recognize as, as being, you know, still there were traces of fundamentalism uh, in, in how I was approaching that. And, um, and so then, yeah, I, that, that sent me down a journey of um, psychological flexibility um, there's various, you know, uh, therapy modalities that really focus on that, um, mm-hmm. kind of holding lightly to our beliefs, our thoughts. And, and then from there, um, just realizing that um, there are a lot of folks who've experienced trauma in the church uh, or connected to religion and, and, and then became more uh, focused on, on that work as well. And so I still do some coaching with uh, deconstructing folks, um, helping people find um, you know, more connection to their humanity and freedom in terms of mm-hmm. their own choice and um, clarifying their values and moving forward. Um, but the bulk of my work now is focused on trauma. Yeah, now that makes yeah. sense. I mean, trauma in and of itself uh, is such a, a new concept mm-hmm. that we're wrapping our head around yeah. the, the psychological community. Right, but just, yeah, for sure. That's, an, that's a very early uh, concept. I mean, only, I, I can't remember what year it was, but it was pretty recent that it was mm-hmm. kind of like codified as this is a diagnosis yeah, we can start right. handing out. Um, yeah. So subsets within that, you know, something like mm-hmm. religious trauma, I know like um, Marlene Winnell and other people have mm-hmm. really pushed for like something like RTS, religious trauma mm-hmm. syndrome and things like that. Yeah. And that's not a diagnosis, you know, you, you wouldn't get it's given not, that yeah. as a, mm-hmm. because right. it's not, yeah. you know, it's, mm-hmm. we're, we're barely starting to kind of subset right. yeah. trauma um, as, a, as a broader concepts like his PTSD or something. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, um, can you talk a bit about trauma and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we talked, you talked very briefly at the beginning, kind of, there's so much stuff that's happened yeah. to people. There's so much going on and so much of, of that is, is hard, but you know, in, 
I, I feel like there's a risk of us mm-hmm. minimizing um, a whole category, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and on some level, this is all subjective. The human brain doesn't know that a war vet had it worse than you. Right. It doesn't mm-hmm. know. Right. So yeah, your pain sure. is as bad as it mm-hmm. gets because that's as bad as it got. Um, yeah. But there is an element of, you know, um, a, a potential in us kind of like minimizing a diagnosis, minimizing mm-hmm. a, 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 an experience by right. calling, I don't know, not getting to watch TV more yeah, than sure. 30 yeah. minutes a day because your parents are religious <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It may have been traumatic, but probably mm-hmm. wasn't. Probably just pissed you off and yeah. made you a bit sure. disgruntled. Or a silly example, of mm-hmm. course, but this, this yeah. is a huge spectrum of how mm-hmm. we suffer as growing up in fundamental homes. Yeah. Could you kind of break that open a bit for us? Yeah, I, I think it's really important, this conversation, um, because... I, I have a few issues with religious trauma syndrome because it feels like mm. it's a, a catch-all term that um, if you look at, you know, the various symptoms that Marlene Vanell has identified, um, you have, you know, the whole gamut from, you know, all the symptoms from anxiety disorders to depression to, you know, PTSD. And it, it feels like it's it's too broad to be of, of any real value um, from a trauma perspective. Um, I think also it's it tends to focus more on you know, kind of religion being a bit inherently harmful for folks and yeah. uh, the beliefs not being true. And therefore, um, you know, there's some inherent harm to that. Um, I, I'm i wanting to center the conversation more around, you know, trauma as we understand trauma. And as you mentioned, it's an evolving field. And even as we think about how um, trauma in terms of coming into the psychological world as being kind of shell shock, you know, the, the war vets, and initially, we, we kind of conceptualized trauma as existing inside the event. You know, the event was the big thing. And was the event significant enough to warrant the diagnosis of trauma? And, and as we learn more about trauma, there is a subjective element to it. There's a, a, a kind of a mismatch between your body's internal and external resources and the um, level of stress that you're experiencing. Um, and, and when our body becomes overwhelmed... And we don't have the capacity to handle that. And then we're not able to kind of come back to a place of, of feeling safe and okay. Um, that's, that's what we're, uh, trauma it doesn't exist in the event itself. It exists in our physiological response to the event and then the lasting impacts of that. And so when, when we think about religious trauma, um, a, a definition that we're kind of working on is um, re- religious trauma results from an event, series of events relationships or circumstances within or connected to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that is experienced by an individual as overwhelming or disruptive and has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical, mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. I know that's a mouthful, um, but there's the, the component of the event and then how the event is experienced and then the, the, the lasting kind of impacts of that or effects of that. And... Um, from a clinical perspective, um, we're interested in the event, um, but that's not a primary focus um, because we recognize that, you know, depending on, you know, a, a person's history and, you know, the amount of internal external resources they have, if we were to line up three of us um, and, and witness, you know, a car accident or something kind of horrific that happened in front of us, uh, one person's nervous system may mobilize to move toward the accident to offer assistance. Another person's nervous system may, you know, kind of freeze and, and, and become paralyzed in that situation. Another's nervous, uh, another person's nervous system may, you know, mobilize to escape and they're running away. 
And um, we might say, but the event was traumatizing because it was a really horrific accident that happened in front of us. Um, But how that's experienced by each person will determine whether it would meet the criteria of trauma. And so we're not so interested in the event itself. And in fact, as we learn more about, you know, developmental trauma, early childhood trauma, complex trauma, um, the experience um, of neglect and, um, you know, a caregiver who is at times caring and compassionate and at other times, you know, punishing and abusive, um, those kinds of situations are, are are more traumatizing, as it were. Mm. The the effects of those are, are more impactful on a person's life than uh, a single incident trauma, like something you experience on the battlefield or you know mm. uh, some horrific thing happening um, in, in front of you. And so, um, yeah, thinking about religious trauma from that perspective, we're we're not so focused on um, you know the experience itself. As, as being the thing that's resulting in the trauma, but it's our, our response to that. Were we able to um, defend ourselves, escape to safety, um, to feel a sense of autonomy inside of that? And, and if not, then we want to be curious about, like, how's your body responding now? You know, mm-hmm. are you kind of bracing against the world? Is there a feeling of being powerless or stuck or trapped, um, which tends to indicate an unresolved kind of survival response? And... Um, and so we, we don't think of trauma also as living primarily in our mind. Um, mm. You know, trauma lives in our body as opposed to the narrative that we construct from that experience. That's important. And, and we can begin to, you know, kind of work with those thoughts in more of an integrated, um, in more of the integration phase of, of resolving trauma. But if, we, if we're not addressing the, the needs of the nervous system first, um, we're not going to make much progress. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about that, because in my understanding, um, that's um, a, a new discovery within the new discovery, almost, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the concept sure. yeah. of the mm-hmm. somatic system kind of like holding sure. that mm-hmm. and all these different things. Yeah. Like, that's that's a pretty hard one for most people to wrap their head around, because generally we engage yeah. with a lot of these um, uh, psychological conditions mm-hmm. as right. a psychological condition, yeah, right? sure. all in the head, or, or however yeah, we talk sure. about Of course, the body doesn't really have these nice clean Descartesian sure. kind of mm-hmm. lines. Um, yeah. But but what does it mean for trauma to be in the body? Like, are we talking? Yeah. Like, you know, so, so, so I we, explain um, that for someone? Yeah, I mean, for I sure. Have, I'm fascinated and baffled yeah, by that sure. in, in many ways. Yeah. And I've looked at it. I've tried to study it. And I'm yeah, still like, sure. that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the research around the polyvagal theory um, and kind of how the nervous system is organized in our body um, gives, uh, gives us a lot of clues. And so um, our, our body's communicating with itself. And we call that neuroception, right? Um, my even as we're talking, my heart rate is adjusting based upon the amount of stress I'm feeling, and I, I'm not really aware of that. It's just happening under under the surface. Mm. Um, some of those messages never go to the brain and then back down again. They're just organ to organ um, as part of the the um, the polyvagal nerve in our body. And so, um, when when we think about what it takes for a mammal to survive. Um, we're, we're constantly assessing our environment for cues of safety and cues of, 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 of threat. Mm-hmm. And if we detect a threat, then our body mobilizes to escape to safety or neutralize the threat. And, and those messages um, often are communicated you know, within our system without begin, being encoded as a thought or as a command from the brain. 
And then, and then those, those messages, then what our body is experiencing in terms of what does get to the brain, um, 80% of those, those neurons are firing um, toward the brain and 20% are firing back to the body, which also makes a, a great deal of sense from a survival perspective. You want quick, efficient you know, responses to threat. If a car mm-hmm. swerves in your lane, you instantly react. And then there's a story of like, oh, look how fast I you know, <laughs> got out of the way or like, why is that person driving like that? Um, but in terms of like a decision or like a mental, you know, kind of response to that, um, our body's doing all that calculation without our awareness, without our consent. That's happening as part of the autonomic nervous system. And so um, when we think about, about trauma as existing in the body, and so if I'm experiencing a threat and I'm able to escape to safety, I'm, I'm, that's less likely to result in trauma. Um, or, or that trauma is, it, it will be easier to resolve typically. Mm-hmm. But if I feel overwhelmed, trapped, stuck, not okay, and I go into more of a freeze-collapse response, then, then that feeling, that sense of I'm not safe, I'm not okay, I'm not able to do what's necessary um, will, will, will be this unresolved kind of experience in our mm-hmm. body. And, and then those messages will go to our brain, of course. You, you can't escape, you're not strong enough, uh, capable enough of doing this. And then our, our mind will construct a narrative that kind of makes sense of that. And often when we think about you know, trauma from a more of a psychological or cognitive perspective, we're like, well, we need to reframe the narrative. We need to con- you know, tell our body, hey, body, guess what? <laughs> You're an adult now. <laughs> you got this under control. You know, look around you. Everything's safe. Like, there's no reason to, to kind of be bracing against the world. Like, yeah. you know, just kind of, you're, you're okay now. There can be some benefit to that, but it's not very efficient. Mm-hmm. It really, it doesn't tend to be sustainable either because our body doesn't speak English. Our body doesn't, you know, care about words, about story, about narrative. It cares about feeling safe. And, and mm-hmm. often um, we think about trauma as this unresolved survival response. Your nervous system wants to have a, a different experience that, that kind of undermines that original experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that making sense? It makes huge amount of yeah. sense. Um, I, I guess my parallel that I would uh, associate with this, I, I live with chronic pain. I have, I've had mm, chronic pain yeah, for about sure. 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the modern concept of pain has just radically changed to yes, kind of line yeah. up with what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And yeah. researching that has helped me a lot and, and mm. understanding. But but it's the same thing, these, these sims and dims, safety signals and danger mm. signals. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. and the and at the end of the day, every type of pain is kind of mm-hmm. completely unrelated to whether you're injured or not. It's based yes. on, mm-hmm. have you got more danger signals and safety yes. signals and your yes. body goes, crap, mm-hing. pain, send pain, yeah. mm-hmm. something yeah. will change if you do that. And yeah. that's why you can blow your leg off and not be in pain. Mm-hmm. And you can also yep. see a spider bite you and it didn't actually bite yes. you and be in excruciating yes. pain mm-hmm. just because you've got enough danger signals. But I guess the, the thing that I've been taught in that that's really um, quite profound is we then have this long lasting um, chronic pains can develop mm-hmm. when we receive these danger signals. We don't then feel safe afterwards. Mm-hmm. We don't then, yes. you have this flood of danger and then there mm-hmm. isn't a flood of safety afterwards to make yes. you go, oh, it's over, it's resolved. It's kind of what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then what happens is the brain or the, well, the nervous system, your axioms mm-hmm. and all that, they mm-hmm. fire yeah. together because they, then they wire together sure, and yeah, you sure. learn this pain. Mm-hmm. Are we basically talking about exactly the same system? It's, it's, it sounds like in a lot of ways. It's very similar. Sure. Same, yeah. same principles at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so if, if we were to use a, a bit of an unrelated example and, and then I'll, I'll tie back to a, a kind of a, mm. a religious example. Um, if, if you're watching a nature show and you and you see the the gazelle trying to outrun the cheetah and and just before the, the cheetah pounces, you know the gazelle just kind of like collapses and goes into this kind of freeze collapse. Um, prior to that point, it was all fight or flight. It was just mm-hmm. all systems go, heart racing, adrenaline's pumping. There's just like this. I need to survive, and and then and then um, the nervous system slams the brakes on. Because now the best chance of survival requires not running. If you keep running, you're 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 it's it's toast. You know you're you're over. It's it's you know lights out. But if you collapse, um, there's a chance that the predator won't continue to attack you, and and so there's no guarantee that that's going to be an effective survival response. But it often is. And then also um, in that state, you know the brain. Um, your body produces chemicals that reduce the amount of pain. Um, mm-hmm. You feel a bit dissociated, disconnected from that. Near-death experiences or really horrific experiences um, that are traumatic. Often, uh, folks have very fragmented memories around that because they're 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 you know the experience of it feels very disembodied, disconnected. And so, so there's a merciful kind of um, element to evolution there in terms of that kind of preparing to die. But also um, in that state, predators often won't attack an animal that's not moving. Um, they, they're visually oriented towards the thing that's moving. So there's some survival benefit to, to, to that. Mm. Uh, if an animal's immobilized already, they may be ill. And if I, you know, eat that animal, then I may, you know, also be ill. And so, so there's, there's a chance that that could benefit their survival chances. Mm. Or, you know, like, okay, this animal's already dead, so I'll just, you know, go get my cubs and come back. And, you know, when you see that gazelle kind of um, spring back, you know, come out of that freeze collapse state. It's imperative to its nervous system to complete that prior process. Mm. If it doesn't, if we were to, you know, put that mammal in a cage and not allow it to run, it would just cycle in and out of this freeze collapse response. Mm. It would come out like it would, you know, hit the bars and like, and then freeze again. Um, and, and so if we think about how important that is and why that's important, um, if that nervous system doesn't know that it escaped or has a felt sense of having mm. escaped, now it, it, it gets locked inside of that, that, that kind of freeze collapse response. Yeah. And, and so, and then if you, if you follow that uh, gazelle as it kind of goes, um, it runs away, it'll run just full speed and then eventually kind of slow down. And then its body will kind of tremble and shake. And as this nervous system comes back online and then it's just like eating grass again, you know, yeah. the trauma is resolved. Which is amazing, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating to see like your body can do this. Mm. Uh, we humans, unfortunately, are really clever and we have language and we can construct stories and narratives and we can have you know, abstract ideas and thoughts and, and, and we can reconnect to those traumatic e- events in different ways. And we, we, don't, we don't recognize that how important it is to um, kind of complete that process. Mm. And, and so um, to to just change the story to be like, Oh, you know, that's over now. You're good. <laughs> you know, logic and reason would say you shouldn't 
be feeling what you're feeling. Um, but try to tell that to a nervous system that doesn't trust you mm. because it needs to feel safe. And how does it feel safe? It needs to feel strong. And how does it feel strong? Well, it does what needs to be done. It says what needs to be said. It has the experience of, of, of resolving that. And um, yeah, it's, it's mm. really, it's changing how we think about trauma, how we approach it. Um, cognitive approaches are, are falling to, this, uh, to the side uh, as we're recognizing yeah. they're helpful in terms of reorganizing our story about trauma. Um, but in terms of resolving it, um, it doesn't tend to be as effective. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, it, it's, it's really fascinating. I guess the reason I was going to bring up pain was um, understanding that um, these heightened danger signals <laughs> that need to be flooded with safety signals. Yeah. Um, one of the primary ways that um, I, I had different psychologists work with me and stuff, and it was fascinating. I went to the pain clinic, one of the top pain clinics mm-hmm. in the UK. They had 18 people on staff and none of them were yeah. medical doctors. And of the 18 people, yeah. 16 were uh, psych- psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, one was a physiotherapist and one was a, uh, a nurse, I think, mm-hmm. um, that could prescribe do- medicines and stuff. But yeah. like, it's fascinating to me. But anyway, so we sat down with these people and they were like, well, actually, what you need to do is, uh, so my pain is in my hands. And they were saying, you have learned when you use your hands, mm-hmm. your, your, your system goes, send Phil pain mm-hmm. signals, get him to yep. stop using his hands. It's da- dangerous. It's going to damage him. It's going to hurt him or whatever. Yeah. And they were like, what you need to do is find safe ways to use your hands mm-hmm. and push them into yeah. a little bit of pain, mm-hmm. but then tail it back so that they go, yeah. oh, yeah, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. I thought I was in yeah. pain, but it's fine. Um, and I guess that, that that's why I was, I, I guess I'm interested. It, does the parallel kind of flow there where what we're trying to do then when we're looking at people that haven't resolved this trauma, that are learning that um, maybe they're in a, a situation where, I don't know, um, you probably would have much better examples of what a religious trauma system might be, but, but people that are, have... Yeah, I was going to say, would you like to offer examples, one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, and, 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 yeah, so, so I, and I think maybe this could help frame the uh, more of a conversation around this as, as using a concrete example. Mm. And, 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 and you'll be familiar with this example. You know, the fear of hell is yeah, super common for folks who grew up inside of really fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist groups that believed in a literal hell. And, and if we think about, you know, hell as being traumatizing as an idea or a belief, mm. um, that's not quite the case, you know. Um, as a kid, I was exposed to various other stories and, you know, fiction that I read, horrific depictions of different experiences, and, and, and those didn't result in trauma for me. Mm. Um, but there was something about hell that was different, and it's not because, you know, I'm already anticipating um, some of the uh, maybe um, evangelical folks who might be listening to us now and, and saying, well, the reason hell is different is because it's real. <laughs> um, but but that, that, that's not actually the reason why hell um, results yeah. in trauma. When I, when I experienced um, um, hell as an idea, I, I was in, in a church service and I was gripping the pew in front of me and my body went into a survival response and I needed to escape to survive. Mm. I needed to defend myself against this threat and my heart is racing and I'm like, this isn't okay. And the Christian folks around me were like, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit or that's, you know, the conviction. It's like, well, no, that's a mammal that is perceiving a threat that's very, right. <laughs> very real in its experience and, it, and, and it's trapped. I couldn't go mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah. It wasn't safe yeah. to leave, right? Mm-hmm. I needed to leave. I, I needed to stand up and defend myself. I needed to, 
you know, have the experience of, of, of being safe uh, because I did what was necessary, but I wasn't able to. And so mm-hmm. the um, religious trauma doesn't exist in those beliefs themselves. It exists in our physiological response to them. And so when it comes to resolving the fear of hell, in my experience from a trauma perspective, we can deconstruct the idea, you know, for years, and people do. <laughs> we can read all the books, we can talk about how hell was not even, you know, part of the original, you know, manuscripts, we can talk about how it's, you know, evolved over time, we can talk about how, you know, how could a just loving God, you know, even conceive of such a thing, and and, and we could have just this really crystal clear cognitive understanding that hell doesn't exist, and yet you still wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with your heart racing and, and you're sweating, you feel like, yeah. you know, it's the end of the world. What your nervous system needs in, in that experience is to have the experience of resolving that. And so for me, that looks like um, having the felt sense experience of standing up in that church service and saying, no, how dare you? I, I know what you're doing. You're using fear to try to control me. How dare you? You know, just no, mm. pushing back, defending myself or saying like, this is not for me. I'm out of here, you know. And, and if my body were to feel what it felt like to escape, now my nervous system can have a sense of, you can do what's necessary to defend yourself against hell. Mm. Right? And so I, I think that gives us a, gives us a, gives us a, a kind of a different um, perspective on you know, what, what trauma is, but also why um, it doesn't live in our head. You know? Yeah. Uh, the, the deconstructing it piece can be helpful and it can be a way to get to a place of now I'm willing to, you know, take the next step. But yeah. if we think um, it's all in our head, we're still going to have this persistent physiological response to a threat that we didn't resolve. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I do a weekly Q&A on Instagram and mm-hmm. literally every single yes. week I get this. Yeah. Every day I get yeah. maybe four yeah. or five people messaging me, asking me, like, how do I deal with this fear of mm-hmm. hell and this trauma? And that is always one of my suggestions. I'm like, hey, one thing that's many, many people find mm-hmm. deeply helpful is to educate themselves and just learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There yeah. is, oh, gosh, that was one view out of yeah. many. And mm-hmm. actually, there's not even that much mm-hmm. credit to it. Or yeah. maybe. So even if I'm wrong and there is a mm-hmm. God... It's probably not going to send me to hell. Yeah. Oh, cool. You know, yeah. so there's there's a component of that, but it's one of probably about six or seven different suggestions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and yeah. all the other ones aren't an intellectual mm-hmm. conversation yeah. that we have. Yeah. That they are very um, guttural, and that's without me mm-hmm. educating myself even on religious yeah. trauma. That's me just working with people over time and yes. going, yes. "This is what's working. It's working mm-hmm. to help them get into therapy with someone that does, mm-hmm. you know, CPTSD work, or yeah. it's helpful for them mm-hmm. to." You know, process this in in a in a much more tangible way. Do mm-hmm. visualizing exercises, visualization exercises, yeah. and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and, and and that to me is very counterintuitive for the vast mm-hmm. majority of us. We we yeah. don't think like this. We don't approach these kind of um, uh, solutions. You know, even yeah. that concept of non-talk therapy is mm-hmm. for most people. They're like, well, what do you do in therapy if you're not yeah. talking? Like that's that's yeah. all we do. Um, so I mean. What are some of the kind of main um, kind of therapeutic processes that people going through religious trauma that, that they could go about exploring? I know EMDR is a mm-hmm. huge one. Um, right yeah. now it seems like everyone and their mom is doing it. Um, yeah, sure. It. It's a bit of a fad at the moment. Um, and, and I think it's really effective for some folks and not mm. as effective for others. Um, 
I, I, I don't uh, do EMDR myself, um, but I, I recognize that it, it is quite effective. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't want to open up a can of worms here, but, but I think EMDR also is, is a bit cognitive. Um, it's mm. about kind of the fragmented memories and reconstructing a narrative. And, um, and so I think it's effective if, if that's where the, the, the primary source of your suffering is, is, is around those memories. Right. Um, there is some embodied component to that. There's kind of a body scan that, that when it's done well, it really incorporates that. Um, talk therapy, like you just mentioned, you're like, well, that's, you know, that, that's kind of what we think about when we think of therapy. You know, here I'm going to describe mm-hmm. what, what's going on in my life, and the therapist will kind of validate, reflect back, maybe ask some questions. And when we look under the surface of what's actually affecting change um, in that relationship, it has very little to do with the words. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated, as you might imagine, by like what is effective in therapy. And when we ask clients, um, and they've done research on this, you know, they don't describe like, well, I have, I was able to reframe this idea and have a new way of thinking about it. That, that's, that's not the primary thing that, that they're mm-hmm. saying was effective. They're saying in therapy, something shifted. I felt something different. I had a different physiological experience that, um, that, that, that was transformative. And so even in talk therapy, when we're um, maybe consciously focused on the words and the story and the narrative, there's another nervous system sitting across from you. And as you say, wow, I went through this really difficult time and this is what happened to me. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that was really difficult. There's a, a sense of, okay, you know, this other person's okay with this information. They're okay with this experience. They're not running out the door. This isn't overwhelming them. There's this ability for mammals to co-regulate one another. And, and this happens, you know, from infancy on, you know, um, an infant doesn't know whether something is safe or not, but they're checking in with the other nervous systems in that space to, to get those messages. Mm-hmm. And, and when we think about that in a, in a talk therapy setting, you know, I, I suspect if we did talk therapy um, with, without, um, you know, kind of vocal prosody, the sing-songy nature of our voice, without um, any visual component to that, um, without any other sensations of connection, um, it probably wouldn't be super effective. Mm. But even when yeah. we read the words on the page, we have a felt sense of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that, that sunset the person's describing, like, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I'm feeling that in my body. So, so it's almost impossible for us to do pure talk therapy. It's, it, there's a somatic sure. component to it. And, and when, we, when we look at what's effective in therapy, it's often that, that those physiological shifts that, that are doing the heavy lifting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So are there, are there particular um, practices or um, types of therapy that you would recommend people keep an eye out for? Because obviously there's people that will say they specialize in a field, mm-hmm. which obviously yeah. that's a great sure. one to keep yeah. an eye out for. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you could be yeah. like, oh, anyone that obviously is saying they mm-hmm. specialize in therapy, uh, in trauma, you know, CPTSD, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when people look for a therapist, they're often going, oh, do they do CAT? Do they do CBT? You know, yeah. mm-hmm. you know yeah. all these different types. Is, is mm-hmm. there particular types that you're like, oh, this is, it just gets in your body. It's, it's how you yeah. really, can I, I, really I see some great Probably progress. the... 
the most popular one or, or the most well-known would be somatic experiencing um, SE. Um, I mm-hmm. would, you know, definitely recommend that. Um, any kind of body-based, somatic-based therapies, um, you know, do your own research, become familiar, um, because I think that the most important part with, with therapy as well is that therapeutic relationship. And so even if you have a, a, a therapist who uh, is, is, is highly skilled, it's like, does my nervous system relate right. to those? Right, where you get those safety signals. Okay. Yeah, for <laughs> sure, yeah. Therapists sure, are yeah. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Probably a bit far yeah. for that term. But. Yeah. yeah, no, but actually that, that happens. It's it's um, for, for, for reasons that the therapist has no control over, you know. Um, of course. When I'm, when I'm doing therapy in my office, um, you know, I'm wanting clients to know that we can move things if we need to, if there's certain colors or certain smells, like we'll do what we can to make the space, um, you know, safe for them. And um, just that realizing how important that is. Um, yeah. So, so I think um, any, um, any kind of um, somatic based approaches, um, folks who work from a um, polyvagal theory uh, perspective, um, that's not a, a therapy modality per se, um, but it's um, it's a framework, it's a perspective on the nervous system, um, and, and there's some some more work happening to kind of bring that into the therapy space. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you think um, when it comes to looking at therapists, I know that with the Religious um, Trauma Institute, you're looking at trying to train people mm-hmm. with um, who are looking to help people with trauma, yeah. um, but needs some level you know next level um education you are going for a religious component to that as well though right am i right in that that you want to help people understand the religious component of the trauma yes uh, Yes. not just trauma do you think Mm -hmm. it is important i mean i'm sure you get some progress without that Mm -hmm. um but do you think there is a a significant difference finding a therapist um or someone to work with you that understands the 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 nuances involved Mm -hmm. with religious trauma as opposed to trauma in general yeah, I, I, there's, there's a few different ways of answering that. I think um, if I had to choose between someone who knew a lot about religion um, versus someone who knew a lot about trauma, right? Mm. I'm, I'm going to go with the, the trauma therapist, right? Um, uh, but all things being equal, if, if you're showing up and, and, and you're working with a therapist who is, is highly skilled in working with, with trauma, and you're spending a fair amount of time educating them about purity culture and, and how that just, you know, w- was was difficult for you or, you know, other um, you know, kind of religious experiences. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know like this happens, you know. And, and, and so I think there can be that um, level of, of comfort knowing that someone understands what you're saying. Yeah. Um, in fact, in some of my the, the coaching that I do. Um, which is, is is not therapeutic per se, but it's more psychoeducational and, and can help people uh, develop a framework around around religious trauma. A lot of my clients are working with their their therapists locally, and then you know consulting with me um, to kind of bring that religious trauma understanding to that that process. Mm. And and so yeah, I, I think I think ideally, um, you know, if if you're working with a client as a therapist who's experienced trauma in a particular context. Um, to educate yourself about that is really helpful to the client. <laughs> um, it's not their job to educate you. And, and so we, we, we want to provide resources that um, therapists can get up to speed. The other piece that I think is important and worth noting is if you're working with a therapist and that trust in that therapeutic relationship is so important, 
and the source of your trauma is religious in nature. And then, you know, three or four sessions in, they're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, I go to that Baptist church, too, down the road. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oof, you know, all of a sudden, the level of safety and trust begins to, <laughs> like, take a serious yeah. hit. And yeah. and then especially when when um, maybe well-intentioned therapists are, are dismissive of the experience, well, it wasn't that bad. Like, really? Church? You know, like, mm. that's why you yeah. are having a hard time functioning in the world because of church? Like, yeah. it wasn't that bad for me. And, and I, I think um, just just increasing the awareness around that, just, you know, giving this a name, um, helping people recognize that that church can be an amazing source of strength and connection and community for folks. And it can also be a source of, of harm in the same way that families can be and relationships can be. Um, yeah. And then recognizing like, what is it about church that tends to correspond with, with, with trauma, uh, the power and control, the secrecy, the amount of autonomy or lack of autonomy. Um, you know, how does that impact a person's experience, a sense of, of, of safety? And um, one of our goals also down the road is to, to do some harm reduction um, work with um, mm. kind of churches and religious organizations. Um, because as you know, the feedback loop from folks who have left that goes back to the leadership of the churches, mm -hmm. um, that, that loop is often broken, right? Yep. There's the... And, and when, when people do report back, they're dismissed, you know, once you're outside, yeah. you're outside. Yeah. And if it didn't work out for you, well, then you weren't spiritual enough. <laughs> you weren't yeah. praying enough. There's something wrong with you. And so that there really is no accountability there, or very little accountability, I yeah. should say. And, and we need to find ways to help religious organizations understand, you know, as you and I talk to people every day um, who are saying this happened and that happened, and I tried to reach out to someone and I was told to pray about it or we don't cause a fuss because it'll look, you know, it'll reflect poorly on the organization. Mm -hmm. um, then you realize that, you know, built into some of these systems is um, this ability to kind of perpetuate trauma as opposed to recognizing it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, my brain is just exploding with, with ideas and thoughts, but, um, you know, I'm just thinking of the research we're doing, looking at the community of people that deconstruct mm -hmm. and obviously that overlaps with a whole bunch of other communities, de-churching, yeah. deconversion, all these different things. Um, but I mean, to be able to sit down with a church and say, look, we've mm -hmm. looked at this group that you are saying, I have yeah. no idea what all these people are, <laughs> right. despite them having sat down and explained right. to you very well, yes. Yes. many yes. times yeah. why they've yeah. left, mm -hmm. um, but to be able to sit down almost as a impartial third party and go, mm -hmm. do you want to have a look at data on this group of people? Yeah. And we can point out that actually, mm -hmm. I don't know, 15% of them all have trauma on some level from yeah. their religious upbringing. And these mm -hmm. are the kind of roots of it. These are why they say yeah. they, they have it or what, what yeah. we've highlighted. That kind of thing, I can see opening doors that, mm -hmm. that just aren't being opened right now. You know, like you're talking yeah. about, it's just this is just in one ear at the other yeah. and and the amount of pastors i've talked to where i've talked to people that go to their church and they're going yeah. i have no idea why yeah. these people are leaving and i'm like they told me the conversation you had they told me what they told you yeah you mm. definitely know where they left you just yeah. cognitive dissonance right out of that right. one yeah for um, sure i, I want to talk about the, the christian therapist component because mm -hmm. People give me a lot of shit for this, especially Christian therapists. Mm -hmm. But I go, I, I would say nine times out of 10, do not even consider a Christian mm -hmm. therapist. There's plenty of therapists out there that are not Christian to not even go there. Because mm -hmm. in my experience, it is really common, this dynamic mm -hmm. of Christians really struggling to accept mm -hmm. 
there's anything wrong with Christianity yeah. or, or some mm-hmm. form of Christianity or, yeah. and, and in some way, shape or form massively allowing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's a code of ethics that you have to yeah. live to yeah. as a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I've seen them massively break that on a mm-hmm. whole nother level sure. where they yeah. really mm-hmm. do cross lines. But I think yeah. just on a, on a very subconscious level, there's a mm-hmm. protection of my you know, existential framework, right? Yeah. Is Christianity. That's how I yeah, exist. Sure. It's my narrative. I don't want to go there. You're making yeah. me feel unsafe. Right. right? Yes, and, yes. And, yeah. and so do, do you have thoughts on that? Do you recommend people kind of avoid, you know, people that are religious or, mm. or whatever, um, yeah. if possible? Or? Yeah. I, I do have some thoughts on that. And I, I think, you know, back to what I just said a few moments ago, if given the choice between, you know, um, even a religious therapist who is really well versed in trauma versus a secular therapist who you know doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of skills with trauma, that would be a harder choice for me. Um, but if we were working more from a, a body based, somatic based approach, where the the story, the narrative, you know, the the kind of content of of my experience wasn't as you know front and center, mm-hmm. then then I, I still might err on the side of the highly skilled trauma therapist who is a Christian. Um, that being said, um, that's going to be more difficult when you're initially showing up for therapy, when you're yeah. you know beginning to work through your trauma, because that 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 therapeutic relationship is so important. You know, once there's a bit of a bit of stability, and you know, I can um, you know handle a person having different beliefs or ideas than me, and we're just here for the trauma piece, my nervous system's response yeah. to the trauma piece, then, um, you know, it's possible to do that. But, but I think in general, um, what you're saying is, is, is spot on. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you are showing up and, and, and there's the, the implicit biases of the therapist, like you said, as a questioning Christian or as a non-believer or, or, or an ex-believer, um, you represent a threat to their nervous system in that space because you're saying church mm-hmm. harmed me and you're wanting to defend it in order to maintain your own sense of safety in that space. And, um, you know, therapists should recognize that and, and find, you know, a better options for, for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think we, we have, we have this idea that, um, we can work with anyone as therapists because we, like you said, we have our code of ethics and we know, you know, to withhold judgment and meet people where they're at and be very open and accepting. Um, you know, that being said, when you have implicit biases and, you know, you're bringing things to that relationship that you're not aware of even. Yeah. And if you're a Christian therapist working with, you know, someone who's deconstructing, but they're showing up because of, you know, work-related anxiety or something, well, then you're, you're probably going to be okay. Um, but if we're talking about church and how that's harmed me, um, that that's going to make that, you know, more difficult. Yeah. yeah. Ha, have you come across, uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I've come across a lot, even in my own personal experience with Christianity, therapy is a big no-no in a mm-hmm. lot of circles, yep. right? It, you, your yeah. therapy is from your pastor, right? Who yeah. probably did like two mm-hmm. weeks of uh, courses in seminary on yeah. how to, you know, help someone. Um and almost across the board does horrific yeah. damage nine times out of 10, these, these kind of yeah. on that level. I know a mm-hmm. lot of pastors have proper qualifications, mm-hmm. are fully qualified, and, and I, I'm not talking about that group of mm-hmm. people necessarily. Sure. Um, although I'm certain they'll fall into some uh, don't talk bad about my insurance. <laughs> yeah, for components. sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
there, there's a component um, that I've come across where some people, as they are early in their deconstruction, they're not really wanting to let go of their faith. Mm-hmm. They're not wanting to let go of their Christianity completely. They're maybe identifying, gosh, some of this was toxic. I don't know if I believe mm-hmm. in hell anymore, and I can yeah. see how that's really damaged me. But they're actually quite fearful of mm-hmm. um, therapy as a whole, maybe yeah. because they come from that background. Or maybe they're certainly open to therapy from a Christian, but mm-hmm. not so much from a, a, yeah. a secular... Do you have advice on how people navigate that process of, of um, I guess, going from a place where just therapy as a whole, just showing mm-hmm. up to therapy is a dangerous yeah. thing for yeah. you? Um, is, is there a way people can kind of approach that? Or, or I, yeah. I'm probably asking I, I, for a miracle well, there. I don't, well, no, I don't know yeah. why, where I, I, I begin. Think, but. Yeah, I think it is a challenging question, and it'll, it'll depend on the person, of course. But um, I, I think... Um, I think acknowledging that if you're showing up to a secular therapist, especially, and you're like, you know, I'm kind of, this is new for me. I didn't, you know, grow up going to therapy or it was kind of off limits and I'm not really sure what to expect. I think sometimes um, just kind of being upfront about that, this is a concern that I have. And um, then, you know, that, that at least allows the therapist to kind of acknowledge that fear um, I've, I've, I work with believers, um, and and I work with folks who have experienced religious trauma, and, and they're wanting to you know reconnect to their church or another another um, another church, and and you know I'm I'm more than happy to help them through that process. Recognizing like what are the things that are are maybe a bit risky or scary for them, you know, mm-hmm. having worked with believers in the past with you know something as simple as mindfulness. Um, they're like, oh, like that feels a little bit new agey right. and that's like kind of off limits. And like, okay, so let's, I don't use mindfulness as, as mindfulness as a word. I'm like, yeah, we're just noticing or just being aware. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I just kind of like notice the colors in the room. And, and all of a sudden we're, we're, I'm not, you know, trying to trick them into doing mindfulness, but we're just saying mindfulness as a term, um, maybe comes with some baggage for you. And really what we're talking about is just noticing how your feet, touch the ground when you're walking and you know that's kind of cool to notice that it helps you connect to the present moment a bit more mm. and and then often they're able to connect it to more meditative you know christian prayer and other kinds of you know experiences that, that work for them and so I, I think acknowledging that um um can be helpful and then you know um if a therapist has no clue what you're talking about or why that would be an issue for you um that may be a, a sign as well um but uh, I, I think a lot of therapists would, would understand that, yeah, ther- therapy is scary for a lot of us, even yeah, if we yeah. didn't grow up believing that it was, you know, maybe of the devil it's or something to be. Thing, isn't yeah, it, so. it is. Yeah. It can be. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> mm, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. And I guess in a, in a similar vein, I'm really interested because at the beginning you talked about being quite fundamental in your shift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know your wife pointing out or your yeah, sure. time, like mm-hmm. going hey because you're so kind of fundamental yeah. and, mm-hmm. and this is really common this i mean this is a mm-hmm. really common oh, this is sure. just how we psychologically develop you know mm-hmm. we, we live in a very fundamental black and white world and then we start to realize it's a bit more gray mm-hmm. and evolve and and become a little bit less dualistic mm-hmm. and this to me is um it's such a pitfall and a lot of people mm-hmm. that are um thought leaders um mm-hmm. but even people that are in therapy or in places where they're trying to help people that are coming out of very toxic environments mm-hmm. no one's disputing that um i think as someone like marlene Winnell, who i think is amazing i really mm-hmm. do and i think she's done phenomenal work but she is very black and white 
There's mm-hmm. no question yeah. about yeah, sure. if you ask yeah. her, what do you think about religion? You don't yeah. have to ask her. Yeah, right? sure, yeah. She's, right. yeah. Very she's already said, yeah. Um, and, and so someone like um, Marlene would be very um, blunt and to the point about, mm-hmm. no, religion, you need to mm-hmm. draw a line, get out yeah. of that world. Mm-hmm. Don't go into spirituality. And these, these are dangerous yeah. areas. Mm-hmm. You come out and you're, you're safe and you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talked about a bit, a bit more nuanced and, mm-hmm. and maybe there is a little bit more um, uh, of an open approach to this mm-hmm. that could probably say, well, actually, I can imagine certain religious frameworks be really helpful for certain people, mm-hmm. or certainly that certain spiritualities can mm-hmm. be very helpful for certain people. Yeah. Um, do you have thoughts on what components of religion are the bits, you know, if, if we can mm-hmm. be a bit black and white, if we can go, mm-hmm. okay, but here's the red flags, here's the, yeah. the, the landmines, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, go play in this field, but you see the big bits I'm mm-hmm. circling? Don't go near yeah. those. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Can you maybe identify what you see in religion as some yeah. of the most kind of dangerous, so, traumatic kind of... Yeah, so so we, we actually... Um, our, we have a, a survey um, as part of the Religious Trauma Institute on adverse religious experiences, and and we've been asking folks um, over the last you know six months or so. Um, I think we have over two thousand respondents, and and so we have a sense of like what people experience um, as part of you know adverse religious mm-hmm. experience, um, what they felt like at the time, what they continue to feel over time, and then also um, there's just kind of open-ended questions about, you know, describe what that was like or, you know, what kinds of experiences are there. And so we're, we're collecting a fair amount of data. It's not, you know, um, a, a clinical study or an academic study, but it, it's an exploratory survey. Like we want to get a sense of what are the next questions to ask. And um, mm-hmm. but what we're learning from that is, is um, the number one thing that folks experience at the time is shame. And, um, and feeling kind of powerless. And so um, it, that's not surprising from a trauma perspective that that, that would be the case. Um, but then over time, what a person experiences is um, distrustful of others. And so there's that kind of, you know, um, barrier to connection and relationship. And then I think shame is still in, in the top five um, in what people continue to experience after having, um, you know, spent some time, there's been some time between the initial event and, and, and now. And, and so when we think about the, the role of shame, um, just in terms of how groups function and the adaptive um, component to shame in terms of keeping people in line and that, that in-group versus um, out-group, and if you're cast out of the group, um, you know, it's a bit of a, a death sentence in, from an evolutionary perspective because you can't survive mm. alone. You need the group. And also the group needs you. And so there is that need to control and, and shame does serve an important function, um, at least it has in the past, when you couldn't kind of seamlessly move from one group to another. And and so um, the amount of control and fear and shame um, that's baked into some of these religious structures um, you know, and, and then that kind of ties into consent. Um, if I'm not free to leave without, you know, punishment, um, then am I actually consenting to be part of this? And um, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of factors that um, can contribute to that feeling of being stuck or trapped or powerless, um, which, which tends to correspond with trauma. And so, um, you know, is the group open to, you know, outside, you know, 
observation or accountability or does everything happen in-house you know do we, we do we handle all the problems inside and um when when there's that secrecy i think um, you're just creating conditions for trauma you're, you're creating conditions for abuse mm-hmm. and um, i don't think religions um or churches especially i don't think they you know got together one day and decided like how can we create the most controlling environment um and, and, and kind of create these conditions that are perfect for abuse and harm. I don't think it was intentional in that way. I think they, um, they just noticed over time that these types of um, structures and behaviors tend to keep people around more, you know, and people don't just kind of come and go. They, they feel invested. There's that kind of sunk cost piece to it. There's the, I've invested time and energy in this and, and now I can't just leave. And if you leave, then bad things will happen. And so there, there's just a lot of those kinds of components um, that, that make the, uh, the conditions for church to, to be, um, you know, potentially traumatizing for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think another thing worth noting is that organizations aren't safe for humans. That's just kind of how that is. <laughs> and, and it's not a, a nefarious thing. It's not an intentional thing. It's just the reality is the organization cares more about the needs of the, the group than the needs of the individual members. And just to be blatant and honest about that, just to be like upfront about it, you know, join our church there's a chance that this is going to harm you, <laughs> you know, yeah. join our church. You know, we do care more about the reputation of this organization than we care about you as a person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so like that honesty would be refreshing because then the, then the individual members can decide like, okay, so how much trust am I placing in this? How much autonomy am I giving up to be part of this? And, and, and that can be more of a, a conscious choice. Um, mm-hmm. And as a therapist, as part of informed consent, you know, folks know that therapy can be difficult. It can be challenging. Yeah. It can be re-traumatizing. It doesn't always go well. You have a medical procedure and there's a, you know, one and a half percent chance that, you know, you're going to die on the operating table. And you're like, okay, I got to sign the form that says, I agree, this could harm me. You go to church <laughs> and, 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 form. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. There's you a, like 8% chance you're going to have yeah, but wouldn't that be refreshing to have to have that conversation? No. Because then, then as a member, you're able to to approach that from a perspective of, mm. yeah, I, I need to do what I need to do for myself to be safe. I can participate yeah. and and I can connect insofar as I feel safe doing that. But as soon as I'm like, yeah, this feels a bit controlling. In a fundamentalist system, you're like, well, it you know, then I need to be more submissive or I need to just go along yeah. more. I need to like have more faith. You know, there's all these, all this pressure to just kind of push past those kind of alarm bells going off in your body. Um, but if, if you're, if we're starting with, you know, you know, um, if, if something comes up in therapy and it doesn't feel right to you, like you, you're within your right to say, no, I don't want to try this experience or this exercise. Yeah. And I will validate that and respect that because your autonomy, your sense of safety is more important than anything else we're doing here. Yeah. And, and that's simply not the case in, in most churches. No, not at yeah. all. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think through, I mean, I, I have spent a lot of time in churches. I've probably, I mean, I've spoken in over a thousand mm-hmm. churches. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've been around and yeah. from a very diverse groupings of churches, mm-hmm. not just within one kind of bubble. I think if I literally took that proposal to every church I've been mm-hmm. in in my life, I'd maybe have one or two 
Yeah. So, okay, we'll experiment yeah. with that. But I mean, yeah. it, you're asking, um, you know, fundamental faith is black and white. It's either mm-hmm. right or it's wrong. And if right. it's right, yeah. then mm-hmm. we couldn't possibly say, well, it's yeah. right, but mm-hmm. 10% of you might not. Yeah work yeah. out you know might not go well no everyone will apart from those mm-hmm. people that backslide or didn't want to or yeah. didn't really believe in the first place or any mm-hmm. whatever they whatever we can um narrative away mm-hmm. that yeah. experience yep. sure. so that it, we still have 100 percent. we mm-hmm. still have this works this is perfect yeah. this is great yep. um it's such a tall order do you think about that a lot when you're thinking about you know you talk about how as um you know religious uh, trauma institute you're, you're thinking okay RTI is going to go into churches and we're going to be talking about like, Hey, this is what causes trauma. This is how we, mm-hmm. you know, causing shame, causing these fear. Yeah. Like, do you think churches are going to turn around and go, Oh, I could see how we're creating shame mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to like, yeah. you know, rain no, no, I, 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 um, no, I, I hear what that, you're saying. How do you think about that? Like, how are you strategizing mm-hmm. in your head? Like, Oh, yeah. this is how we're going to try and approach mm-hmm. churches. This is, this is, or even do you see certain types of churches being mm-hmm. open to this? Are you going, Oh, yeah, we're talking yeah. the progressive church or the I, whatever church. I think there is some low hanging fruit. And, and I think, you know, your UU churches, your, your more kind of progressive churches, um, they're probably already implementing some of these strategies. Right. Mm. Um, but where folks are being harmed the most are in these more closed systems, more fundamentalists, you know, the absolute truth of the Bible is all that matters. We don't need any, you know, psychological mumbo jumbo. Um, and so, so I, I think we, we've, we've done a, a bit of a disservice in, in, in more of the secular community where we've, you know, created this antagonism between, you know, science and religion or, you know, secular folks and religious mm-hmm. folks. And, and so if we were to show up and be like, well, you know, your religious beliefs are, you know, fairy tales and, you know, it's not based in science and you're stupid, essentially. And, and here's we're going to tell you how you can, you know, help protect the people in your church. Like th- that's a non-starter. We're not going to have that conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, for us to to really come from a place of we want the same thing. We want to reduce human suffering. Then you have. A particular way of doing that through the lens of Jesus and salvation and the church thing that you're doing, and we have a particular way of approaching that, you know, from a you know what works in terms of um, um, we're not basing it on on truth per se in this kind of written in stone kind of way, but truth from this more you know contextual functional perspective of we're not telling you what to believe or how to believe it. We're just saying when these messages are presented in this way, a certain percentage of of the folks who hear that are going to have a hard time with that. Mm. What are you willing to do about that? You know, we're not telling you how to do it or what to do or what to believe even. We're just saying, yeah, if, 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 if that message is landing in a way that a person is, is, is feeling traumatized by that, like acknowledging that would be helpful, you know, um, maybe there are ways internally to address that to reduce the, the potential for harm. Um, we're not saying that people need to leave the church to be safe. We're not saying that um, the only way to, you know, to, to be safe in a, in a religious community is to not believe. We're saying like, yeah, there are just certain things that we humans, um, when we experience them, they're really difficult for our nervous system to handle. And maybe there are other ways of doing this. And so I, I think, you know, starting from a place of, of where they're at and, you know, not coming at it from a, you're doing this wrong and, um, but how can you do this better? Um, 
I, I think it is still a tall order, though, because <laughs> these systems are in place um, because they work. You know, people keep coming back. You know, we see more fundamentalist groups, you know, kind of growing in numbers. Um, you know, more demands placed on folks, the, the more they stick around. And so to to question that at all or to create some flexibility in that space, um, there's a potential people will, will, will not stick around. And yeah. um yeah, it, it, I, I think I think we have a lot of work ahead of us there, um, but yeah, I think I think it's worth doing having those conversations um, and kind of seeing where that goes. Yeah, do you, do you think in some ways trauma is? I I don't want to uh, believe this, but in part, is it just an inevitable part of some of the systems we need to grow up? and through uh, mm-hmm. up into and through you know so i think of how we develop psychologically from a kind of more broad human psychological mm-hmm. development you know we we start very um egotistical we then mm-hmm. kind of start to move towards grouping and then we become very egotistical yeah. and then we kind of then look to a larger group where we kind of settle we look mm-hmm. for safety certainty security mm-hmm. and that's where the vast majority of people that find themselves in a fundamental mm-hmm. religion have kind of settled yeah. down and stopped mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the people that tend to deconstruct are then the ones who move back into the next stage, which mm-hmm. becomes a bit more egotistical again. It becomes yeah. a bit more, oh, but I'm a me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to give yeah. up my personal mm-hmm. autonomy for this group. And actually, this is, ah, that hurts. I'm kind yeah. of traumatized. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and we go through that process. I, I wonder, can we, can we make a system that is quite black and white, quite fundamental, that does provide this safety, certainty, security. Mm-hmm. Here's some absolute truths for you to feel safe and that many humans kind of just need to grow through. They mm-hmm. have to go through that process on some level, um, whether they're doing it at the age mm-hmm. of seven um, yeah. or whether they're you know doing it at 45. I mean, mm-hmm. that's up in the air. Um, some people are running the world and mm-hmm. they're like at some of the earliest stages. Yeah, sure. um, yeah, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> but can we create stages that are so absolute mm-hmm. without traumatizing people because mm-hmm. it feels almost like a gosh that just seems inevitable to me in some ways yeah. um i mean that's yeah. obviously the goal i guess mm-hmm. um yeah do you feel there's really, an inevitability to it yeah it, it's it's a challenging question you know because I, I think if we come at this from the perspective of our, our brains want certainty because there's a certain efficiency in that um that categorize things into simplistic boxes and categories um that frees up mental space to focus on other survival needs. And, and so t- to see that as a, um, a kind of a natural process that has you know, roots in our evolution, um, I think it's helpful to acknowledge that. Um, when I think about what it takes to have the flexibility to explore the world and think about new ideas, you know, there's, there's a certain privilege implied in that, right? Mm. If, if, our, if our primary you know, needs aren't met, I'm not contemplating questions about God um, or yeah. about spiritual things or, you know, you know, evolving to my highest self. You know, I'm worried about, you know, living to the next day. I'm worried about, you know, food on the table and those kinds of things. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes when, when we come at this from a, a more progressive view, we're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, everyone should be a bit more flexible in their thinking and they shouldn't gravitate towards these controlling groups. It's like, well, maybe we should help them feel safe in the world and mm. focus on their primary needs. And, and I think you'll see that within, you know, religion um, and fundamentalism when, when, when there are, you know, economic good times, 
people don't show up to church as often. The religions don't grow as much. When there's a lot of mm-hmm. uncertainty or conflict in the world, then like I'm I'm craving a bit of certainty here. Like life is really difficult. I, I want someone to tell me that I'm okay. I want someone to tell me that you know it'll get better. And so I I think um, again this is a, a challenging or this there's some tension here where if I'm a leader of a fundamentalist group. I want the world to be ending every month, right? I want there to be like chaos in the world. I want things to be really, you know, messed up. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not particularly motivated to reduce suffering on a, on a, on a broader scale. I'm going to say, yeah, if you're going through a hard time, come to our church and we'll rescue you. But we're not going to, you know, address the cause of your hunger. We're just going to say, we'll give you some food. But we're not going to say, we need some systemic change for you to be healthier and more okay. Because if you're healthy and more okay, then, yeah, you don't need what we have to offer as much. And, and so it, it feels like some of these, um, you know, things are at odds with, with one another. And, and I think to even acknowledge that as well. Um, but when it comes to, uh, I think the question you're asking is, is is that is there does trauma serve that 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 function of helping a person go from this more black and white mm. to a more evolved state? Um, I, I think it can um, for sure. I think uh, Peter Levine talks about a, a trauma, um, you know, really well known in the trauma field. Talks about uh, he would wouldn't would not wish trauma on anyone, but he would wish that post traumatic growth on 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 anyone right there's that yeah what you learn and experience from going through something um can be really helpful um but again to set up conditions for people to experience you know trauma um right <laughs> <laughs> not 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 super great um in terms of um, a compassionate approach and so yeah i, I don't know I, I think i think some of these things do correspond with with people's development and, and deconstruction for sure um but yeah, it definitely is a mixed bag. Yeah, no, that, that's it's really interesting and very insightful. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, very, very fascinating. I, I just yeah. am fascinated about how people change and how people yeah. go, what causes mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Why sure. do some people start to deconstruct and a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other people just go, yeah. no, I really need yeah. this safety. Mm-hmm. You know, we, yeah. people um, complain so much. I mean, fresh over there, mm-hmm. you know, in the States, um, mm-hmm. the politics, the whole thing of yeah, it. Sure. Um, but I remember when the, the, the 2016 elections results came in, everyone was shocked. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Um, I had looked at a poll that had happened, I think, before the election results, and it was asking people that were planning to vote for Trump mm-hmm. why. And yeah. whether this was a truthful poll or not, there's many different things people go, oh, well, they're secretly racist or they're secretly yeah. this. Mm-hmm. But the, the number one thing, I think it was like 79%, 78% of them had said that we want to vote Trump because we're, we've either lost our job or we're scared mm-hmm. we're going to lose our job. Yeah. And he's promised he's going to keep our jobs yeah. or great jobs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Gosh, what a conversation that would have been mm. if Democrats had said, oh, you're worried about your jobs? Gosh, we don't want you to have no jobs. We yeah, really want right. you to have jobs. Mm-hmm. We want to create employment. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that would have changed anyone. You know, everyone votes for different reasons. <laughs> sure, you know, I mean, I'm yeah. sure a lot of the fundamentals would be like, well, pro-life, pro-life or, you know, different mm-hmm. conversations. Sure, yeah. But it's, it's this thing of not having those um, conversations, sitting in these privileged places right. where we go, yeah. well, I've got a job. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah, that worried sure. about it. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump's promising jobs. Well, I've got one. I don't need Trump's job. Yeah. What kind of mm-hmm. job's Trump providing for me? You yeah. know, or whatever. Um, yeah. But you don't think of the person in the rural area that's just lost their, the coal mine's just been mm-hmm. shut down or whatever. And that's all there is in this city. There's nothing yeah. but a coal mine. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. do we do now? You yeah. know, and we can't sell this house to move somewhere else because no one mm-hmm. wants to buy a house in an abandoned yeah. town. Yeah. Um, 
That's a terrifying place to be. Mm. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Very yeah. probably trauma inducing yeah. in, in many ways potentially. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I think I think there's a lot of compassion there. Um, uh, a friend of mine and I were we were we were talking a few nights ago about like what do we do with all this unresolved trauma that's kind of playing out in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. right now, and. And I, I think it does really come down to that. Like we're all trying to feel safe in different ways. Yeah. yeah. And some people need, you know, and you know, 10 guns in their house and, you know, a four by four truck and they need yeah. to feel like they can, you know, provide for themselves because that then they can sleep at night then they can feel safe enough. Yeah. And other folks need to have, you know, more s- systemic structural changes so they can feel like, you know, society is a loving, caring place and, and I can be okay here. <clears throat> I don't feel threatened yeah. by others. When we look at it from from that perspective, we can still have very difficult conversations about how do we best ensure, you know, broad safety for the most number of folks. But to to create these kind of, you know, um, political divisions around, um, you know, issues that may or may not have much to do with, um, you know, why a person is voting for this person or not. It's like, well... Are we are we are we addressing those primary needs? You know, is that um, and then from that place, you can make a decision about like what kind of you know person you want to support. Um, but if if you're like, I need to feel safe, and this person helps me feel safe, or they're promising to make me feel safe, then yeah, um, yeah again, I think a lot of politics is driven by fear, which makes sense, Absolutely. and that ties back to our need for safety. And I think just acknowledging that, though, it's not about people mm. being stupid. You know, it's not about them being yeah. uninformed always. It's often about um, this is how I've learned to try to achieve safety, and it's worked to a certain degree, and so I'm going to keep doing that. And until you're willing to offer me something to replace that, um, in trauma work, um, these unresolved you know, trauma responses, dissociating, disconnecting, um, isolating. There's various, you know, things that people will do that, that, that have been adaptive, that have allowed them to survive. We don't come in and mm-hmm. say, hey, let's, let's, let's get rid of all those tools that you have, all those skills that you have, in, uh, until we introduce new skills. And so we're adding tools, we're adding like a different abilities. And so I think in the same way to, you know, you need to give up your guns and your religion in order to, um, you know, participate in, in our society, that's a no starter for a lot of folks because they, they yeah. don't feel safe enough to, um, they, right. don't have, they don't have other options. Yeah. yeah. It's a really problematic thing, right? Because it is, you've got yeah. two people living next door. One of them needs a bunch of guns to feel safe. Yeah. The person right. next door is literally every gun <laughs> they buy feels yeah. a little less yeah. safe. You know, they come yeah, home with sure. a gunshot yeah. bag and yeah. they're like, oh Jesus, I feel yeah, less right. safe. And the yeah. other person's thinking, mm-hmm. I feel 10% yeah. safer. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a hugely problematic um, conversation yeah. for sure. Talk to me about, um, this is um, fascinating to me because as much as this is an emerging conversation, a huge amount of people don't know this is going on. I mean, Mm -hmm. I talk to people every day that I'm not a clinician. I'm not diagnosing anyone, but I'm sitting there going, this sounds traumatic. That sounds like Mm -hmm. there's some trauma here. And and I generally will say, hey, I would recommend checking out a therapist, maybe Mm -hmm. someone that does specialize in CPTSD or whatever to have a conversation, Mm -hmm. just process and see what you think. Um, uh, maybe it's a great idea to put, put them through to your website so they can do mm-hmm. a survey or whatever. Yeah, sure. Maybe does that give some indication to them after they do it and say, "Hey, like 
this is kind of you scored something or yeah. Or so so, so so our our goal is to that'll be kind of the the uh, the next stage, right? To, you need to, the data yeah, to build the skill. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep, that's where we're at. Um, okay, so I guess my point being, so a lot of people don't they're not aware mm-hmm. that they have these kind of deep seated yeah. traumas, um, and yet are living with the consequences mm-hmm. of that. I mean, yeah. that's trauma, right? You live with the consequences, yeah. whether you know you got it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, how do people, maybe people are listening to this and going, gosh, that sounds, I mean, a lot of the stuff you're talking about, I've been through that stuff mm-hmm. or whatever. How do people go about um, starting to identify, gosh, I maybe yeah. have trauma. Like, is, is yeah. there particular things that they should look for? Um, yeah. Maybe specific identifiers mm-hmm. that they can go, sure. oh, I do that. Or Yeah, sure. I I think this really points to the, the need for more education. Um, when people talk about PTSD or trauma, um, a lot of, a lot of folks will think of, you know, I, well, I didn't experience anything that bad. I didn't experience mm. a physical assault or I didn't see, you know, some horrific event happen in front of me. Um, and so, therefore, I'm not even, you know, considering trauma as being a possibility. And then there's another group of folks that, you know, are, are kind of using trauma in a more colloquial sense. And, and you know, this was traumatic because something small happened and it wasn't actually resulting in them experiencing trauma. It just, you know, they're just using that word kind of loosely. And so I think um, just the understanding of, of trauma is not attached to the event itself um, opens up the possibility. Okay, so I thought trauma was about something really horrific, you know, a big T trauma, single incident mm-hmm. trauma, something really big and significant. And now we're saying, well, that's, that's not really how we're measuring trauma. Um, that's one form of trauma, but that's not how we're measuring all, all the ways that we're understanding trauma. Um, one thing that we've, we, we, like I said, we've introduced adverse religious experiences as as a concept um, to kind of reduce the bar in terms of, you know, most people, when they hear the word trauma and they grew up in maybe a fundamentalist church, they're like, yeah, nothing really that bad happened. Even folks who have experienced significant trauma, survivors will often say, well, that was just what it was like to live in my family, you know. Mm. That's just kind of how it was. There, there's kind of a normalizing of that experience and, and they're not attuned to like how that is impacting them. And then when they realize like, oh, you mean I, I can actually go through the day without kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop? I'm not constantly on edge and like people, humans can do that. Um, we, we don't realize it until, you know, we have that experience. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, carrying a backpack with you all day and you just kind of get used to it. It's just there. And then you don't notice how heavy it was until you take it off. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah there, there it is. There's the weight. I think trauma is, is similar in, in that regard where... There's just like, well, that's just what it was like to grow up in my family, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to recognizing that as as um, showing up as unresolved survival responses to a chaotic or you know overwhelming environment. And so, so I, I think tuning into our body, our nervous system, when possible, that's not always possible for someone who's experienced trauma, because trauma does often disconnect us from our felt sense experience. Um, beginning to be curious about that, um, noticing shifts and changes when I move from different environments, you know, um, I remember as a kid going to church, um, just the pit of the stomach feeling, you know, like, oof. um, and it wasn't because I was bored or disinterested. It was like, I don't, this is a scary place for me. Right. Um, you know, certain songs, um, smells, memories, um, and, and, and you notice that all of a sudden, I don't feel quite as safe or as, as okay. Um, those can be indications that, yeah, there's something unresolved that needs to be addressed. And um, each nervous system will have, 
you know, a, a different response to that. And the, the stories and narratives that we construct from those experiences will be unique and different to each person as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think focusing more on, on those responses as opposed to, you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist church, so therefore I must have experienced religious trauma. There's, there, there's a chance that you did. Um, but some folks get through that unscathed, you know, they're mm. like moving yeah. on to the next progressive church or moving on and, you know, I'm good to go. And, yeah. and, and I think that that often happens when, when, when folks describe their trauma to other believers or, you know, other mm. folks like, well, I, I was there too. I went to the same church. I heard that same message. Like that didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Many factors that can contribute mm. to that. And, and, and to just acknowledge um, that it's, you know, a person's experiencing trauma, not because I've decided that the event was significant enough, yeah. but that there's, you know, all these factors of, you know, this mismatch between, you know, your internal versus external um, experiences. And um, yeah, yeah. Mm. So yeah. I guess I think, what the yeah, body decides that. is a safe or danger signal is going to be very different for different people sure. based yep. on whether mm. they've experienced that. And the right. body goes, Oh no, I've done that before and it's fine. Mm. And I, yeah. I got to resolve it or whatever. So mm. now that's kind of a safe signal. It's, it's a lesser danger. Mm. Um, so it's going to be very unique. I yeah. guess. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just noticing some of the other components to that as well. Um, you know, if, if you're, um, a white cishet male in an evangelical setting, you know, it's not going to be as traumatic for you potentially as, you know, um, a sexual gender minority in that same setting um, because mm. they're required to be submissive or they have less access to power and resources. And, and so there, there's already a demand on their nervous system, something that pushes yeah. them over, over that, over their capacity then could be traumatizing where someone with a lot of access to power in that setting is like, ah, oh, what's that big of a deal for me? Sure. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. like it's a subject, it's a subjective experience in, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, well, some of those gender binaries, some of those non-binary mm. oh, options sure. or whatever, yeah. I mean, you're not allowed to exist, you know, exactly. talk about yeah. a sure. high stress, mm-hmm. constant alert kind of scenario. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild to think of. I mean, I, I think the other thing, because it showed up in our in our survey as well, and and because it is often uh, connected to trauma, I think um, shame. Mm. So, if you're feeling a lot of shame, let's be curious about that, and and maybe it's worth kind of describing the um, adaptive survival function of shame, right? We think of shame yeah. as as having kind of like little or no value for us humans. It's just a really debilitating, uncomfortable, unpleasant experience. And um, uh, Gabor Mate, um, a trauma um, a physician, um, was talking about. Um, he gave gave this example that, that that I think is worth kind of repeating here. Imagine that you're like a four year old boy or a four year old kid, and and you, you you're witnessing your your parents fighting. And it's getting kind of aggressive. It's getting kind of violent. And, and you're seeing this and you don't have the capacity to like make sense of it. It's like mm. these humans who are my caregivers that I need them for my you know safety and support. And all of a sudden, like, what's going on? Um, mm. Would it be better or safer or more okay for that nervous system to assume my parents don't care about me? They're actually not safe for me. 
this is really bad. I'm not going to survive this. Um, would that be a safe, viable option? Or would it be more um, adaptive for that nervous system to say, yeah, it's probably something that I did. If I were to just be more obedient, if I would have cleaned up the house better, if I would have done whatever and blame myself. So this kind of internalizing that um, in, in, in why that's adaptive is if I, if I take that on myself, I can still sort of make sense of the world. There's still the mm-hmm. possibility that my parents aren't dangerous, that they still do love me. There, there's, there's this kind of trying to gain a sense of security or safety um, from that, a sense of control. And then if I blame myself, there's, there's a chance I can do something about it. I can change, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so when we, when we think about how shame is wielded inside of a religious context as well, you know, it's never the church's fault. It's never the doctrine's <laughs> fault. It's like, well, you're not believing enough. You're not praying enough. There's that. It, it's you. It's always you. When things yeah. go well, you know, God's blessing. When things go poorly, you know, you're, there's something wrong with you. And, and so yeah. to internalize that shame as a way of surviving in, in, in a religious structure um, that can be very powerless. It can be very overwhelming. It can be very difficult yeah. for a nervous system to kind of um, survive that. It can, it can be traumatizing. Shame and, and trauma often go together because of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think recognizing that, noticing um, how much shame am I carrying around with me, mm. um, that that's directly connected to um, my experience in the church. And, and not, not just the, the thoughts or the beliefs, you know, but, but the felt sense. You know, that kind of heaviness, that oof, constriction, um, oh, I'm not okay, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, being aware of that and then um, beginning to, to, you know, question, like, what is it that I need to feel a bit safer, a bit stronger, a bit more connected? Mm-hmm. Um, who do I need to say no to, push away, set a boundary? Um, yeah, I, I think there's, uh, that's when you can begin to do some of the, the, the healing work around trauma. Um, yeah. To, yeah. There's a, a kind of a, a pushing out of that freeze collapse state into a more activated fight or flight state. This is the gazelle we talked about earlier springing up and then, you know, completing that, that earlier process, um, you know, setting those boundaries, pushing away, doing something aggressive, assertive, powerful, uh, can be a way to begin to undermine that feeling of stuck. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, I guess, Something you mentioned really early on in the talk um, was that you talked about how deconstruction itself can be quite traumatizing potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you have advice for people that are maybe just starting to tiptoe into the deconstruction? Maybe they're 10 years in and they're mm-hmm. still going, God, I have no idea what the hell's going on. Um, how do we avoid re-traumatizing ourselves mm. or traumatizing ourselves in a whole new way as we go about deconstruction? Because deconstruction is something that i mean if we go from a stage where we wanted certainty and security and safety mm. deconstruction is none of those things right it's mm. uncertain yeah. it's insecure and it is mm. not safe it doesn't feel yeah. safe right yeah. it feels very unsafe mm-hmm. um like that 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 it feels like we're setting ourselves up for mm. this hugely terrible mm-hmm. awful experience which yeah. i know for a lot of people it's a wonderful exciting experience and yeah. for many people it's both you know uh, the vast majority it's yeah. a big mix of everything mm-hmm. isn't it yeah um, so and what can people I, do yeah, I, 
I, I think you bring up a really great point. And, and what's the difference between the person who's like, oh, it's fascinating. Like, look at all these scriptures and look at all this new information I have. And <laughs> how can I make sense of this? And it, it can be really exciting. It can be fueled by curiosity and wonder and like, let's figure things out. And, you know, I, I would assume that there's a certain foundation of safety operating for mm-hmm. that person's nervous system to be able to consider and hold these kind of opposing ideas at the same time and like, yeah, maybe don't have to know the answer to this and I'll still be okay. You know, there's a certain mm-hmm. level of safety and okayness already there. Yeah. Um, when it comes to kind of deconstructing in, in this very disembodied way, um, like it's just all mental and I, I'm not tracking with my nervous system. I'm not, you know, paying attention to, yeah, like I've been spending a lot of time reading about hell and this feels really risky. Like I can't quite shake it. I'm not sure if I'm okay. Or I'm considering that maybe, you know, maybe Jesus isn't who I thought he was, or maybe, you know, some other really fundamental belief is being questioned and there's no capacity to just allow there to be space for it and be flexible with it. But it's like, this feels like I'm, I'm not safe and okay here. Um, what do you need to feel safe and okay first might be a way of approaching that. Um, and, and I think that's where, where deconstruction itself can be, um, can be a context where we experience trauma. Um, it, it's, it may not be the, the kind of primary source of it, um, but when we think about kind of you know, cognitive load, mental load, you know, load on our nervous system, deconstruction is not just about rearranging the narrative or the thoughts. It's like... Mm my parents won't speak to me anymore. It's the, you know, well, can I belong to this community that's been a, a source of support for me and now I have to kind of build from the ground up. Um, will I, you know, be okay? Can I survive this? Do I have enough resources? You know, my job is connected to the church. Um, there's all these other factors. And so um, it, it's not just a, you know, a philosophical kind of yeah. experience. It's like, this has real world implications that connect directly to my sense of safety. And, 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 and as, as you know, working in this space, um, there are a lot of folks who don't believe and they're still going to church every week because mm-hmm. it's required for their survival. Right. Absolutely. What, 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 what is that experience like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Many All of the them more are. So, right. Cause absolutely. What are they yeah. going to do without this job yeah. or, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. no, I, I, I'm sure that there are, there are numerous. And in fact, um, you know, in, in my experience, and I think some of the research holds this holds this to be true as well, that the more committed you are, the more invested you are, the more likely you are to go through this deconstruction process. Absolutely. And in fact, yeah. if I were to, <laughs> if maybe part of my harm reduction for churches would be, um, if you want to like maintain membership, just kind of have these, you know, the 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 kinds of Christians that that God would spew out of His mouth, the lukewarm Christians, you know, <laughs> just don't, warm, yeah, 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 just like yeah, they they really they, they really don't you know invest too much time in exploring or asking questions or taking it too seriously, and so yeah, I think when you move up into leadership or you begin to see kind of how the sausage is made behind the scenes, you're like, whoa, like. Mm-hmm. I have some serious questions now all of a sudden, whereas I'm just showing up on Sunday and, you know, it, it's nice to see people who look familiar and sing some songs together and, you know, have a talk, you know, they're, they're less likely to be seriously questioning this. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I think paying attention to the, the felt sense experience of that um, can be a way of um, maybe pumping the brakes a bit 
I don't have the capacity to kind of keep diving into this. Um, what do I need to, to build a bit more capacity first? Um, yeah. 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 I think there's so much at play there as well. And I think people give themselves a really hard time in this process mm -hmm. as well. Um, people, you know, why is this taking so long? You know, I've been doing this for a couple of years or, you know, or, or I've been doing this for mm -hmm. two weeks and it's not, yeah. I've not figured it out. Or, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. whole yeah. levels of impatience. Yeah, sure. I'm the two week mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. Um, but it, it is really fascinating, you know, you talk about like how we are set up for maybe mm -hmm. success and not, but like I've always been fascinated about how I've approached this process because I deal with so many people. I talk mm -hmm. to so many people and I'm like, gosh, 95% of the people at least find mm -hmm. this very difficult and very hard. Yeah. And I loved almost every step of the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm like, what was different? But it was fast. It's my, my mother did bring me up from a very mm -hmm. young age to say, don't believe what people tell yeah. you, you know, you, yeah. you know, weigh it, listen to it. Even mm -hmm. if it's me, you, uh, I think she regretted that. Quite yeah. quite <laughs> but, um, you know, she was like, you, you question authority. Mm -hmm. you, you might not always know the answers. We, we sometimes don't know. And, and, you yeah. know, she would very frequently be like, I don't know always. And that probably was not helpful mm. for me at certain stages of my childhood. Yeah. But actually when it came to deconstruction, it was really normal for me to be like, well, yeah. I've been questioning stuff all mm. the way along and there's yeah. just some new questions. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, I'm very um, disassociated. I'm not very in my body. I'm not very mm -hmm. attached to my emotions. I have um, alexithymia. I've got mm -hmm. very low interoception. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, lots of things that yeah. cause me to not be present in what's going on. Mm -hmm. So the other side of me goes, maybe I'm just massively traumatized and I just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's yeah. the other side of it. So, uh, yeah. But I think it's really, it just highlights that you can have these different components mm -hmm. going on in your own background, your own um, creation um as you've gone along yeah and it can completely change if you're going to end up traumatized or not it's, yeah it's so huge really yeah. fascinating do, do you have um I, I don't know if data will exist on this it's mm -hmm. probably far too early but do you have an uh an idea a hypothesis on how widespread religious trauma is amongst um yeah. you know fundamental churches or, or even people mm -hmm. as they come out of fundamental churches how likely is it that, that you know do you reckon half the people doing is 10 percent? you know like, yeah what, what do, do you have yeah. ideas or is I, there I, data I, even yeah so so I, I would be kind of taking a stab in the dark um i, I think i won't hold you to it don't yeah worry. okay yeah <laughs> I, but 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 I, I i am i am interested in 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 talking about you know the conditions for for trauma and, and how prevalent those are and um I, I think there is a selection bias. The folks who who I work with uh, tend to be the of ones course. who are traumatized, and so I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, like my God, like all the churches are traumatizing folks, um, and and I'm not working with the the folks who are like, yeah, the church is great for me, and so 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 I'm I'm aware of that. However, just thinking about um, the the experience that that folks have in order to kind of survive in a space, and I think maybe distinguishing between safety versus survival. You can survive in a freeze-collapse state for a long time indefinitely. You mm -hmm. can survive in a please-appease state for a long time indefinitely. Um, and, and when we think about what's required to be part of a high-control or high-demand group, um, often it's that I don't get to have my own sense of autonomy and power. I have to go along with the group in order to be okay. And so when my safety is, is external to me, if I go along, then I get to survive. If I please and appease, I get to live another day. Um, when I think about the number of nervous systems in a fun, in fundamentalism that are existing inside of a survival physiology, um, and, and, and they really are just surviving as opposed to feeling safe, um, I think that that percentage is really high. 
And I think especially for, 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 for certain, um, you know, marginalized groups within in that space as well, like it's, it's even higher. And, and so when we confuse safety for um, survival, right, you're like, well, their needs are met, everything's fine, like, they keep coming back, you know, like, well, I can't leave my husband, because if I do, I can't survive on my own, because I don't have an education, because the church said I wasn't mm. supposed to be educated, and I, and I have children, you know, maybe more kids than I wanted to have personally, and I feel responsible for them, and so, of course, I'm surviving, but I don't feel mm. safe. And, and so I, I think um, that creates conditions for trauma, for sure. Um, how much of that results in trauma for you know, individuals, what those numbers are, I really don't know. Um, sure. But, but I, when I think about the impacts of that, and, and when I talk about this in different places, um, folks will be like, oh, yeah, like, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, I, I didn't feel safe. It didn't feel okay. And when, when it comes to kind of developmental trauma, early childhood trauma um, that, that we're discovering is, is even more traumatizing than kind of big single incident traumas, there's a component of there's a caregiver that, I, that is a source of comfort and safety and support. And I want to move towards that. My, my nervous system orients towards connection, but they're also kind of harsh and cruel and mm. punishing at times. And so I want to move away. And I'm, I'm caught between, do I move away or toward, you know? And, and there's that kind of feeling paralyzed or trapped there. And then you, you, it's hard to make sense of the world when I don't know whether the world's safe or not. I would sooner know that my caregiver is, is always abusive because then I can adapt to that. Yeah. But I don't know whether it's safe or not. And I think about um, a lot of you know, fundamentalist Christians, their view of God, you yeah. know, He's this lovely, like, are you caring, compassionate. I know, <laughs> but the same, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a, a book on my bookshelf. Um, I haven't got to yet, but it's it talks about attachment um, through you know God and, and attachment, attachment in, in religion, and mm. God isn't you know a primary attachment figure um, because he's not a, you know a living nervous system in front of us that we can actually physically connect to. And, and yet, um, God is, is is often kind of a pseudo attachment figure, and when when we begin to kind of connect and relate to that, and then there is this sense of, you know, I know God loves me, but also if I masturbate, he I'm going to go to hell, and it's like, but I'm going to masturbate, so like, well, is it am I okay or not? And, and there's that kind of like, <gasps> I you know, and that, that that's really right. hard on the nervous system to handle, right? Yeah. And you know, then I layers of shame like and judgment. Straight, yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Geez, yeah. That jacked yeah. me up like terribly. Yeah. It was like, yes. yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And, and, and I'm yeah. not an anomaly. Um, well, at all. Uh, at all. No, I, I've, talked yeah. to, I've talked to more than, more than one person who they were going to castrate themselves. Like, wow. like yeah. that sounds very extreme. But, but, you know, a lot of folks have, have had that, that, that same thought, you know, like, yeah, it would be better if, if, if I did this extreme thing yeah. to kind of be able to survive. And I, I was it, at a conference yeah. where someone actually showed up and mm. did that and uh, had to be rushed away in an ambulance. And, mm. and everyone was like, what happened? And it was this guy like yeah. castrated yeah. himself in the yeah. church, you know, mm. just, and that's a wake up call mm. in a moment. But to be honest with you, yeah. it didn't wake me up. 
Right. I was just like, yeah. oh, well, that's a bit crazy. And then I yeah. went back to the same thoughts. Yes. You know, yes. I'm not not going to follow through on that or whatever, sure. but like mm-hmm. still reading those passages that say, yeah. well, it'd be better off that mm-hmm. you pluck your eye out than look yeah, at someone sure. or, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. what's the analogy there? Better off if you what than mm-hmm. watch porn and masturbate yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. right? What's yeah, what, sure. Where am I supposed to draw the analogy here? Right. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's no joke what people yeah. are going through in the shame yeah. and the. A heartbreak. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think also when it comes to trauma, the 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 real or perceived threat. You know, um, we might say, well, nothing actually bad, nothing bad actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and and after after you deconstruct the idea of hell, there's that. Well, it doesn't exist. So why why are you bothered by that? And because it was a, a perceived threat that your nervous system yeah. responded to as if it were were, were real. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's a really important piece. Um, Something that I find with folks who are deconstructing that I wanted to share with you, with you and your audience as mm. well. Um, part of resolving trauma is is being able to do what you needed to do then, but you weren't able to. And so, kind of saying no, pushing away, setting a boundary, um, like I need to know that it's safe and okay to do that. I, I don't have a point of reference for what it feels like for me to be the one in charge mm. to say, like, no, you do not treat me this way. Um, when we began to deconstruct the idea of God, sometimes this God figure who was a bit of a monster and wasn't a, a safe um, kind of being for us, we we, we want to we need to push him away because it's always a him, right? <laughs> um, we, yeah. we, need to, we need to push this God being away, and, and then he begins to evaporate in front of us. There's like I, I no longer believe in God, and so the, mm. again, there's this kind of unresolved quality to that. And so I think um, the, 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 there's some hope here, though, because just as we can, um, you know, recall or, or imagine a horrific experience that we experienced in the past, and our body will have a kind of a visceral response to that. Um, and in that same way, we can imagine saying no, pushing against uh, a God who we no, no longer believe in. We can imagine what it would be like to say no, to have that conversation with him, to be like, how dare you treat humans this way? You know, I'm a more moral, compassionate being than you are. I would never treat my kids this way. And have that kind of forceful, powerful, um, you know, response that will begin to communicate to our nervous system as, as, as a very real thing, right? Mm. I know what it's like to, to, it's really to do good. what's necessary. And so um, it's not surprising to folks that a memory can trigger a physiological response about something horrific that happened. Um, what we often don't recognize is that we can connect to a real physiological experience of safety, of strength, of power, and and, and to begin to to approach that from a more somatic place, as opposed to I'm going to deconstruct a belief or an idea. Your your brain will love that, but your body's like, hey, what, what about me? I don't I don't feel safe down here, you know, and yeah. and and so um, I I haven't written about this yet, but I'm exploring the idea of of knowing God, um, and not, not with the, the K-N-O-W, but just N-O-I-N-G, like yeah, knowing, yeah. saying no to God, establishing consent in that relationship where, where, where it had no possibility of existing before because mm-hmm. you had to go along or else you, you were toast, right? You had to go along or wow. else you'd be punished. And, and, and to, um, to experience that, even if you maintain your faith, there's a relationship that that you can develop some level of consent potentially, right? Yeah. Depending on, on how you conceptualize God, 
Um, but yeah, that, that, the ability to say no, to push back, to do what needs to be done. Um, it's so important for us to feel safe in the world. Yeah, I can totally say that. that sounds amazing. Yeah. I guess related to that, and we need to wind up here, but um, I, I, I'm just constantly, everything you say, I'm like, next question. Yeah. Got a great idea. <laughs> um, or yeah, um, related to that, I've seen a lot of people respond very differently um, to this, but I think it's it's in somewhat relation, uh, relation to that is their process of coming out, their process mm-hmm. of um, talking to family members, mm-hmm. telling a pastor, hey, mm-hmm. I think you're full of bullshit and I just can't, yeah. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm sorry. Um, obviously, there are very uh, specific situations where that's not safe. And, mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. shouldn't. You mm-hmm. need to figure out a way to do that in a safe way and mm-hmm. in, in a healthy way. Um, some people will never confront certain mm-hmm. other people. And that's yeah. a really good idea not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, do you recommend that that is something that people go through a process mm-hmm. for if it can be done in a safe and healthy yes. way? It feels yes. like it would yeah. very much be a yes. similar process of, yes. of knowing that environment, yeah. that structure, that person, yeah. that that relationship. Yeah. Not maybe knowing the relationship, but mm-hmm. the 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 d- dynamic of that relationship, mm-hmm. the system of it, yeah. and maybe setting boundaries yeah. or whatever it might be. Yeah. If, if, if we don't, if we're not intentional about that, our, our nervous system will find ways of reenacting trauma for us. Um, it, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing that, that our bodies do. Um, you know, if you have a, you know, maybe you were in a car accident at one point and then, you know, you find yourself driving faster on the same kind of curve, but this time, you feel like you're about to go out of control, but this time you correct just in time, right? Again, mm. when you were traumatized, I, I wasn't able to correct in time. I was in an abusive relationship and I, I wasn't able to get out in time. I, and I, I suffered trauma because of that. And, and now there, I, I find a similar kind of partner. And, and why, why? It's, it's, confu- it's puzzling to us. Mm. You know, why are people making these really poor choices, we think? Well, they're trying to resolve their trauma, they're not doing it maybe in, in the healthiest and safest way possible, but they need to resolve their trauma. And so if I find an, a similar narcissist, and, and I, I'm, I'm, but I'm able to say no, I'm able to escape in time, then I'm like, oh, I'm okay. You know, I, I can mm-hmm. trust myself again. I'm capable of doing this. And so when it comes to, um, you know, confronting a, a pastor or having those conversations with family members, um, it doesn't have to be face-to-face. In fact, um, we, you can have the same physiological experience, you know, in the safety of your therapist office or at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really, really important. Um, you know, I, I do an exercise where imagine that someone's kind of, you know, pushing against you. And even if you were to just kind of hold your hands by your, your shoulders like this, you know, I just notice my, my breathing becomes a bit more shallow. There's this like, oh, this doesn't feel safe. I, I know these are my hands. I've done this exercise a thousand times, but there's like, you know, my, I kind of the breath goes in and then it's just this kind of shallow breathing. And then I imagine what it would be like to say no and to forcefully push out. And there's this kind of middle space where like there's this aggression, this power, this fight or flight response. And I'm like, no. And then there's this all the way out. And it's like, no. Yeah, like I've, I've neutralized the threat completely and, and I'm just like, no, I, no. If you just say no with your voice, that's going to be powerful to some level, mm-hmm. right? But there's this physical pushing out. And even, even, if you're imagine, even, if, even if you were to just imagine pushing out without actually physically doing that, you're 
just like if I were to imagine running, I notice my legs begin to move a little bit. And there's this like, okay, this is what it feels like to run. I'm, I'm kind of bringing that, those sensations into my body again in a way that my nervous system can, you know, take those signals because the language of the nervous system is more sensation and, and begin to, to approximate what I needed to do then. And so, yeah, definitely having those difficult conversations or saying what needs to be said uh, can be a very powerful thing. Um, reenacting that in a way that, you know, there's not enough safety or support around you, it, it can be re-traumatizing. Um, and so there is a risk of that. Yeah. Um, but, but I think honoring that, that impulse to do that, you know, why, why does this feel so important that I, you know, confront this person? Because there's this unresolved experience that I don't feel safe. I don't feel like mm. I can just freely move about the world because what if I see them somewhere or what if they saw this, you know, control over me and I need to kind of regain that control. And so, yeah, finding ways to do that in a very powerful somatic way. Um, yeah, can be, we experience the world through our sensations first and then our mind kind of creates the narrative. And, and if, if we begin to shift and change how we physically feel in the world, um, we, 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 it's going to begin to construct different stories. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that can be an effective um, part of deconstructing as well. Um, yeah, it's not just a mental process. It can be a more embodied process. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much. I, I, I feel like maybe maybe we need to revisit a, yeah. a year or so and, yeah. and, and do another chat. Um, I absolutely love your work i am so yeah. thankful for what you're doing uh, really thankful you took so mm-hmm. much time to to share with us here if people want to connect with you and mm-hmm. your work what are the best ways they can be connecting with you yeah so so room to thrive um, is the name of my my private practice my website room to thrive.com um, on pretty much all the socials um, uh, instagram and facebook i'm more active there twitter as well but it's all at room to thrive and then the yeah. um uh, the Religious Trauma Institute. Um, you can go to re- the uh, just religioustraumainstitute.com or um, on, a, on the socials on Instagram and Facebook at Religious Trauma Institute and on Twitter at Religious Trauma. Um, yeah, those would be um, the best ways to connect with me. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. And I really encourage people dive into your stuff for sure mm, and thank you so much for um, that. yeah that's really exciting and yeah yeah I'm, I'm excited i'm already thinking and i'm already thinking gosh i've got someone that i can uh, uh talk to in the future because one of the studies we want to look at is um is fallout of trauma within uh, mm-hmm. deconstruction so maybe we can uh, work together hopefully if you've got a scale yeah. by that point we can maybe yeah that so there is a, a spiritual abuse scale that one of my uh, colleagues mm. has developed in as part of her graduate um program and so um, yeah, we're, we're looking to adapt that as well. I, um, yeah, there, there are various research projects happening right. and, and part of um, Religious Trauma Institute is we're actually um, we'll be rolling out here in the next week or so a, um, a collaborative research group for um, graduate students and academic researchers, um, university labs and so forth who are looking at doing work in this space. So um, just uh, awesome. we're not doing the actual research ourselves, but uh, creating a context for them to communicate and, and share resources with each other. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. I want to I want to get stuck into that. And I'm sure yeah. people listen. To, I talk to researchers frequently that mm-hmm. are, you know, grad students, whatever yeah. people in different um, uh, places that are, they have deconstructed mm-hmm. and therefore it's led their, their work to what to look into these things, trauma yeah. and, and things like that as well. So that's a great resource for people. Yeah, to check out I'll, as, as I'll, I'll send you a few so. scales as well. There's another a scale that another one of my uh, friends and colleagues developed as part of her graduate work. Um, on, on kind of the mental health impacts of uh, 
of a spiritual struggle, I think is the, is the scale, a spiritual struggle scale. Okay. Um, and so, which kind of, you know, overlays on top of um, de- uh, deconstruction. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'll send you a few other resources as well. That's awesome. Cool. I'm really excited. And I'm really excited to see how it, how it does map with yeah. like long term as yeah. well. Cause I think it's going to be really interesting to see if, if it does kind of, mm-hmm. kind of steady out over time, if it just goes like most people, right? Yeah. Most Christians are like, Oh, this is just a downward slope to hell. Mm-hmm. Now you're doomed. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of data on the, on the mm-hmm. wellness of people as they leave church does yeah. drop significantly, uh, mm-hmm. uh, mental wellness. Uh, sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm really and intrigued I, to go. I, yeah. What does that look like longer? Yeah, term? Uh, yeah. I, I th- actually, the the study that I just referred to, um, they they mapped on the um, psychological flexibility as well, mm. like how overwhelming that was, like how rigid they were in in, in their process and approach to that, and um, yeah, some some pretty cool findings there. So. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Oh, awesome. Well, yeah. Thanks so much. Forever, yeah, but, for uh, sure. We should, we should wrap up. But, Sounds uh, good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take Have care. Have a good yeah. one. Yeah. Yep. Bye. All right. So that was Brian Peck. And I am sure you agree with me. That was some phenomenal stuff. Really great content. I'd encourage you dive into Brian's resources, what he's putting out on Instagram, especially in his stories as he breaks down um, the posts that he's posting on Instagram are phenomenal um that's room to thrive on instagram and you can check out his website room to thrive.com for more about his therapy his coaching and connect with him through um, facebook and other social um via there link to the, both of those are in the bottom and of course check out the religious trauma institute.com and also religious trauma institute on instagram and facebook um if you are wanting to find out more about the work that um, him and laura are doing with through that Um, I really encourage you to check that out. All right, that's enough uh, from me. Um, As I said at the beginning, check out the deconstructionnetwork.com if you are looking to connect with other people in your local area. Um, If you want to support what I'm doing, I'm putting out these podcasts. I'm talking to people for hours a day, every day. Um, I'm putting out other resources, um, the deconstructionnetwork.com. Everything is for free, um, but it is full-time for me. And so I live entirely off the generosity of people that want to Um, support what I do by becoming patrons or partners. Um, As a thank you for that, um, there's access to a private discussion group over on Discord. We have a monthly Zoom call and there's a few other perks in the the higher tiers as well if you want to support me um, to that degree. Um, There's never any pressure to give as I said, absolutely everything's free. I'll still chat for you for hours in the in DMs over on Instagram if you need someone to talk to, whatever it looks like. But if you do want to support me, that makes a huge difference. Um, you can do that at phildrysdale.com slash partner or at patreon.com slash phildrysdale. All right. I love all of you. I really appreciate every one of you. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next week for another couple of podcasts.